0: Hello, welcome to episode 8 of Scuttlebutt, a Marine Corps Association podcast, and today we're taking a deep dive and introducing a new concept, amphibiosity. I'm Nick, I'm here with Vic. Hey. Will. Howdy. And special guest, the man, the myth, the legend, Colonel Chris Woody Woodbridge. Hi there. Um, Amphibiosity, Uh, Vic.
1: Yeah, so don't bother Googling it. Um, and if you type it into a word talk, you're going to get the red squigglies uh, because it's sort of a word I made up. Um, uh, well, me and, and a few of uh, my Amtracker buddies. Uh, yeah, so uh, the genesis behind this series is um, when I was a young spry. Marine officer, Um, obviously being around other Marine officers, you talk about, you know, Marine type stuff. And one of the really sort of engaging questions we had was, what does it really mean to be that the Marine Corps is an amphibious service? Um, And... Many, many discussions ensued, um, and it is obviously as an Amtrak-er, uh it was very, you know, it related very much to what we did on a daily basis. And, um, you know, of my 20 years in the Marine Corps, 12 of them were spent outside of Amtraks and very much land-based and land-locked. And so it just became more and more of an actual question rather than just something to talk about, well, putting down some brews and so as i've been here uh with the marine corps gazette i've seen many many uh articles that are sort of touching on these things as you know if you have a venn diagram there's a lot of layover and obviously as we have been unpacking force design 2030 um you know and we're talking about divesting investing um yeah, these sorts of questions became more and more germane to what it. what is the Commandant's vision and then what does it mean uh, to be, an, uh, you know, soldiers from the sea. And so then I got to talking with Colonel Woodbridge and we just felt like there was a leveling exercise that needed to occur. Um, and, you know, this being scuttlebutt, we wanted to sort of take these discussions outside of the realm of Scuttlebutt, take it outside of the smoke pit, take it outside of the bar, and actually start to unpack like, what is an amphibious force? What is a 911 force? Yes,
0: why are those? It was the Marine Corps in the landlocked country of Afghanistan, right? Like- well, landlocked in Iraq, landlocked, landlocked in, in Afghanistan.
1: Iraq. For the past 12 plus years, we you know, Mews have been doing all of the great things, the expeditionary force and readiness. But what do they do? They get off the ship, and then they go to a fob, and then they operate in country. And then they do this huge road march back to the port, and then get back on the ship. Um, And so they spend the bulk of their time on forward deployed, landlocked. Um, And so yeah we just really wanted to get into um these discussions and wanted to engage you the listener uh and we all as always love feedback um you know in ever whichever way but hopefully this um just helps be a part or be a facet of the discussion that i think many marines retired and still in uniform are having about what it what does it mean to be amphibious and so um, and you know some of these concepts that we'll unpack in this episode I think are like, is there such a thing as a service service defining capability when um, Colonel Woodbridge and I were both at CD and I this was a reoccurring theme and something that had to be uh, unpacked and, and defined and redefined over and over again because we as Marines um, in the realm of scuttlebutt love to hang our hats on, this idea of a service-defining capability. Um, and so is there one? What would that If there is, would, would that be for the Marine Corps? If there isn't, then what is it that defines us as a service separate from the other services? Um, another question that we'll look to unpack in the series is, does it even matter that we're amphibious? Or is our contribution to the joint force um value added without ships um i know acmac spoke at length about l-class shipping Um, so clearly it's something that senior leadership finds important but is it all right or does it need to be Um, another question we'll unpack is is eabo amphibious or is it just fixed site on an island um what does forcible entry from the sea what does it mean to, to provide forces that can conduct forcible entry from the sea? And are we even still in that business? Is area denial the same as forcible entry? And then, you know, what does it mean to project fo- power forward from sea basing, the sea basing expeditionary? And then at the, f- you know, sort of one thing that will impact, especially as we um, bring some acquisitions uh, specialists in here is like, are we then, procuring systems that enable o plans that may or may not have amphibious operations incorporated into it and obviously that's high side stuff but we'll talk about a lot of these things in more general terms so that uh, it's accessible uh not just for um from a vocabulary standpoint but also from a, a class clearance standpoint as well so yes
0: absolutely and it's well as we can clearly tell it's a many-layered situation. Yeah, oh yeah, this is an onion um, for sure. This is yeah, or a parfait or a tiramisu. Or a tiramisu <laughs> or a or just a seven-layer dip. <laughs> um <Yes. laughs> Uh, there's a california roots coming out there there we go and, uh, right. sorry and
1: every question we ask uh is open-ended so again any of our listeners out there or writers or expiring or writing your thesis or such you know here's a good question for you to answer
0: and some of the stuff has already been kind of popping up on the gazette blog mcamarines.org slash blog you can find it there um with all voices welcome Um, And to help start peeling back some of the layers or start dipping our tortilla tortilla chips chips into (laughs) our uh, seven-layer bean dip, we have uh, Colonel Woody Woodbridge here. Um, I think locally we refer to the man, the myth, the legend himself as Woody around these parts. Um, He doesn't really need an introduction, but we're going to give him one right now. He is the uh, editor-in-chief at Gazette uh, Magazine and i would like uh i'm gonna just leave this to you right what, infantry to kind of,
1: marine yeah um commander at all levels why, why
2: don't you let me drive yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah we're gonna
0: yeah we're gonna we're gonna step back let's hear this yeah one out. so
2: um yeah my uh my nickname uh and, it, and i'm an infantry marine so it's it's just a nickname it's not a call sign um is woody uh just like everyone in my family with a last name woodbridge you know even my mom winds up being called woody um uh, there are a lot of woodies in the marine corps um, but but you know they're they all secondary to me um, I, I was a uh, 30-year marine uh, officer infantry officer by trade um, i was uh, very very fortunate throughout my career that i was either stationed somewhere uh, in first marine division uh, first Marines or Seventh Marines, mostly. Uh, so, so leading Marines out in California, uh, deploying operationally, training for those deployments, recovering afterwards, all those, all those infantry type things, um, and then uh, the other approximately half of my my career was spent somewhere around uh, Quantico, Northern Virginia, and uh, I'll include the uh, the Hampton Roads area uh, in that uh, in in various roles as a, a teacher, an instructor, um, a trainer, uh, a school director. Uh, I was the, uh, uh, the director of uh, the School of Advanced Warfighting, which is the, uh, the advanced intermediate level school for majors um, that spends an awful lot of time in, in seminar and readings and research uh, unpacking issues exactly like we're, we're uh, going to be talking about this morning. Um, and, uh, I've also, uh, spent a significant amount of time as a, as a trainer, staff trainer, both on the, on the staff of the MAGTAF staff training program, and as the chief of, uh, joint training, uh, in the now defunct joint forces command, uh, down at the joint Warfighting center in Suffolk, Virginia. So in, in those roles, um, uh, I've, uh, supported, uh, training for, uh, exercises, uh, that, uh, uh, essentially train staffs in capabilities, particularly those capabilities that are too complex or too expensive to train with live training exercises. Um, and so since really the, uh, uh, the early 1990s, the Marine Corps and all the Joint uh, Forces have um, uh, migrated towards the use of uh, computer-based simulated Uh, so constructive environment uh, war games in order to do staff training for large formation exercises to include large formation uh, amphibious and expeditionary exercises that are just too costly to do uh, uh, live. However, I'll point out that as a young officer, as a lieutenant in the late 1980s, we still did live large scale, meaning Marine Expeditionary Brigade and Marine Expeditionary Force level exercises with troops in the field. Um, and uh, from that perspective, as a lieutenant platoon commander, doing those sorts to include uh, 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 two amphibious MEB field exercises um, on ship, um, w- using, frankly, more ships than are available in the West Coast inventory in total today uh, for a three-week training exercise. We did all that live, and I can tell you from the platoon commander perspective, it was a phenomenal uh, uh, experience, but also a tremendous waste of the platoon's time, (laughs) because at that level of exercise... You know, a rifle platoon or a heavy machine guns platoon or a reconnaissance platoon is a tiny pawn on a giant chessboard. And uh, thus, the uh, the use of computer simulation in, in our modern training is so much more efficient and effective uh, for training those large-scale exercises. The reason I bring that up is because, since we're on the subject of amphibiosity and I've got to say, it's a great word that doesn't exist. <laughs> exactly. it, it, it truly doesn't exist, but it's one of those words, made up words, that is a signature of the Marine Corps, perhaps second only to Magtaffery. Magtaffery, <laughs> sir. Um, and so, you know, w- what in the world does that mean? Um, I would say that for our, uh, uh, essentially anyone in the Marine Corps now uh, below the rank of Brigadier General. Uh, master gunnery sergeant, sergeant major, CWO5, some some older colonels, uh, of which I was one, um, the sole experience of amphibiosity are mu deployments. And uh, that's, that's a legitimate experience, but it's so narrow in scope uh, that it, it really doesn't, uh, uh, to use the word, unpack these issues of Amphibious operations and what may or may not be a service-defining capability Um, So that's that's a little bit of my background Uh, uh, I've been the Gazette editor for going on six years now and in that role I get to read everybody's term papers (laughs) and an awful lot of those term papers over the last two to three years have been uh, uh, Getting after these sorts of issues from a variety of different uh, perspectives Uh, so uh, you know, with that, let's uh, let's dive into this. Absolutely, uh, sir.
1: Uh, well, sir, uh, you know, thank you for uh, being with us and being generous with your time. Um, so, layout. Let's let's kick it off. Um, service defining capability, sir. What is it?
2: There's no again. That's a made up term, <laughs> um, but it gets thrown around quite a bit. Um, it's in some ways. Uh, so, the first thing you have to do is really examine uh, what meaning, which meaning of capability um, is the relevant one for the discussion that that phrase is being used in. A capability can be used to, uh, to define or to uh, uh, explain um, a, a broad set of activities, functions, uh, uh, and operational uh, uh, small-c capability that a service possesses. Um, And so then the service-defining capability, looking across the armed forces, um, becomes sort of a strategic messaging uh, code phrase uh, that talks to what is better defined as uh, the role or mission of that armed service. Um, And and some of them are very clear, all of this discussion of quote-unquote roles and missions and those terms get used interchangeably in this discussion. Um, dates back to uh, 1947, uh, immediately following World War II and the, the Key West Conference. Then later, 1949, uh, the Defense Reorganization Act, and then follow-on legislation uh, in 1956 and 1958. The Marine Corps did not uh, uh, achieve the status of that uh, uh, legislatively defined role and mission until the late fifties. Some of them are very simple. The army, their role is land warfare, period, full stop. Subordinate to that, the army's role also involves mobilization of the country, of the United States of America in time of uh, a major or total war. So there's a strategic... Uh, 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 underpinning of everything that the army does. Uh, The last time that occurred uh, really was World War II. Uh, And so looking at that model, everyone in the United States was in the army in in World War II, essentially. Um, The Navy, uh, it's sea warfare Uh, uh, and everything that that defines in terms of the dimensions of sea space. So subsurface, surface, The air above sea space, which is one of the reasons why the navy is allowed legislatively to have its own air force. The air force's role legislatively is strategic air power, they are, uh, they're. Their uh, uh, commonly used tagline is the, the uh, strategic arm of decision. And so much of that relates back again to the late 40s up through the late 50s and the emergence of the nuclear triad. So uh, the strategic bomber command at the time and the strategic uh, missile command of the time were part of the nuclear triad that ensured the survival of our nation uh, during uh, the great power competition of the Cold War. Lots of uh, of of uh, cool old terms there: mutual assured destruction, uh, first strike, uh, offensive capability. All those things, um, and it is uh, it is Wednesday, but it is throwback Thursday because we're <laughs> starting to use those same uh, terms again in relation to uh, uh, emergent capabilities. Uh, strategic missile capabilities in the people's republic well, hopefully of China. they
1: don't dust off the uh, doomsday clock that they used to have back then. <laughs>
2: or uh or people need to start watching uh, uh dr strangelove again yeah. that's, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's probably the most uh, the most uh, significant uh, strategic work of the of the period um and so uh you know when you come come now around to the marine corps as a service um what is what is the marine corps's role or mission And as defined legislatively, we are charged uh, to provide a balanced air ground striking force. So an expeditionary striking force um, up to a division's worth of ground troops, up to a wing's worth of of aviation times two. Um, That's that's the Marine Corps' role so to look at a service-defining capability, now you get over into what I'll call the other um, uh, capital C capability definition. And that really becomes code for um, material solutions and equipment. All right. And so in order to have the broad capability of an amphibious operation, uh, there are material requirements necessary in order to do that. And some of this is, uh, for want of a better term, a, a vocabulary drill. Uh, and it's important to get to that vocabulary, what the ground truth terminology means. Uh, many have often said that the one of the true marks of a military professional is the, the precise use of precise terminology. Um, and so... Uh, yes, there, you know, there are plain language definitions, plain English definitions, but the definitions that count, if you will, um, are those uh, uh, accepted uh, doctrinal definitions of these terms. So when we talk about an amphibious capability or an amphibious operation, all right, that really means a military uh, operation launched from the sea by an amphibious force to conduct landing force operations in the littorals. That's the definition of an amphibious operation. And there's a, as in, as in every uh, uh, military uh, doctrinal definition, there's a bunch of lesser included offenses in there. So in order to really understand that definition, first, what do we mean by um, an amphibious force? All right, well, an amphibious force is defined as an amphibious task force, which is a collection of ships to include amphibious ships, ships with land, uh, well decks, ships with uh, uh, flight decks, ships with troop berthing for embarked Marines and, and uh, uh, storage for their equipment and ammunition. Um, oh, by the way, those amphibious ships also have command and control capabilities, particularly aviation command and control. So the command and control of aircraft and missiles from the sea. And a, on a, in a, a gray bottom combatant amphibious vessel um, the other part of an amphibious force is the landing force that's those embarked marines and the means that get them from ship to shore to operate in the littorals. they are the landing force they in an amphibious operation they conduct landing force operations in the littorals. okay what do we how do we define the littorals um, and that is a, a what I'll call a Uh, a squishy definition Mm -hmm. because the littorals are uh, bounded by your capability to project power from the sea base. So there's almost a little bit of a logical loop there, but essentially the littorals are how the landing force, the amphibious task force define them. We go this far and no farther. Um, We also acknowledge transitions of command and control during an amphibious operation. In the early phases, the commander of the amphibious task force is, is in charge. And one of the main reasons that that leader, that commander is in charge, again, is because the means of commands and control are on ships. As the landing force goes ashore, there is an expect, expectation that command and control phases ashore. And this is one of the uh, one of the areas where having mu amphibious experience really doesn't cut it as far as understanding uh, uh, the breadth and depth of large scale amphibious operations Um, until and unless command and control of aircraft and missiles. So aviation or air command and control phases from ship to shore, then command and control really has not phased ashore. And the commander of the landing force never really takes command of the entire amphibious operation. We have not done that in the context of an amphibious operation, really, since Korea in terms of an opposed an opposed amphibious operation, um, uh, but and certainly. And I'll talk a little bit about, about the, the types of amphibious operations, a, kind of a different view on that. Um, we have taken uh, the capabilities to do aviation command and control ashore. We've transported them on ships and taken them ashore. But more often, they are a fly-in asset, often flying not from an amphi- from a sea base or an amphibious base, but fl- flying from uh, the continental United States or from a U.S. base overseas. And in reality, almost always from a combination of both, because the limiting factor in aviation command and control is the ability to establish the radars and communication nets that permit you to command and control aircraft in the tactical air uh, command center, attack center. Um, there, are, there is only enough equipment in the Marine Corps to put three of those up at one time and really there's, there's there's shortages for that. We don't want to get into any, any classified information. But the fact is, in order to have aviation command and control established in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, at various points in the last 10 years, it took a global sourced effort from the entire Marine Corps and limited our ability to do that sort of command and control anywhere else in the world.
1: Um, and so, sir, just to, uh, I guess play it out uh, to give examples. So say the 22nd MU shows up in, in Kuwait. What you're saying is is that that transition of command and control only really happens, it's not a phased, it, it happens a, abruptly and it's not complete. Because once the 22nd MU shows up in Kuwait, the Marines get off port, load up on tactical vehicles. Now the landing force commander has it, but he doesn't have the air. He really doesn't have ta- – com- he's really just doing TMC, tactical movement control from Kuwait to, say, Takidum or, or Al-Assad or wherever. And then he's then being absorbed into that ground commander, that regimental task force's a O plan, and then he does that for two months. Then he comes back, and then transfer of authority, if you will, then goes back to the ship as they embark back. And then once they pull out of Kuwait, now the Navy commander is back in control. Is that kind of what you're saying?
2: That's that's a a, a good thumbnail. Um, the one thing, and using the Iraq example, the one thing that's missing is that uh, there in that example um there is or was uh attack center a marine aviation command and control uh in this case our our iraq example at al-assad but it didn't come off ships right it didn't phase ashore it was established there
1: and they were and it stayed there they were basically DS to the regiment task force
2: um no that's not a fair that's not a fair statement they were uh the command center of the aviation combat element of Multinational Force mm, yes, West. Yes, 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 okay. So the, so the MEF, the Marine Expeditionary Force Equivalent Command in Iraq, was known as MNF West, Multinational Force West. Its aviation combat element rotated amongst uh, Marine uh, 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 Wing Headquarters, uh, Mawah Headquarters. But the hardware, software, workstations, most importantly, radar... And communication systems stayed in place as the mm. people yes. rotate through. So again, that's let's talk a couple more uh, 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 terms here. Uh, what we're really talking about there is sustained operations ashore. Yep. All right, and and as we pointed out earlier, in a in a ground warfare scenario. So not surprisingly, the higher headquarters. That these marine forces are are uh, falling under our army headquarters, uh, who assume the role of combined joint task forces or joint task forces, um, and so uh, again that experience and this experience of of the last uh, uh, twenty years really um, does not uh, reinforce our uh, our amphibious. Uh, service-defining capability or amphibious role. It does, on the other hand, reinforce two things. Um, First is, uh, uh, again, going back to a a formal definition, the definition of expeditionary operations. So uh, it's, it's one of these, you know, some amphibious operations are expeditionary operations. Some expeditionary operations are amphibious operations, but it's like a Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. And people um, just
1: throw that term around. That's right. right. But just, ex- expeditionary
2: yeah. operations are defined as a military inv- an invasion, a military invasion of foreign territory, usually away from uh, 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 established bases. So, in other words, you're, you're not just hopping from the United States to some place or from Stuttgart or, or Stuttgart to yeah. some place. You You are—, you are outside, uh, base support, uh, installation support of United States forces. So, um, that's important the, uh, because, because that's what the Marine Corps did from, from 2002, 2001, really in Afghanistan on, it's what the Marine Corps has been doing, uh, uh, starting in 2001 in the Horn of Africa. Uh, so, uh, that, that, uh, certainly reinforces our value to the joint force in expeditionary operations. The other thing that it does, and this is uh, again, not a, not a doctrinal term, um, but it, it shows, it demonstrates the relevance of Marine forces. Uh, the simple fact of life is um, if there is an extended major uh, uh, operational commitment of U.S. forces and one or more of the of the services is not involved in that operation, they lose relevance. Um, obviously, in a major land campaign, the Army most relevant. The Marine Corps also does air, goes ground operations as as a MAGTF right. and has to maintain relevance. So you know the question of you know why were Marines in Iraq and Afghanistan because they have to be. They have to be not not because it's important to the Marine Corps, but because they are a part of the nation's force structure. Uh, they are uh, uh, allocated and assigned to uh, regional combatant commanders, geographic combatant commanders, for those purposes. They support those concept plans, operations plans, and operations orders. Um, so one one other nuance here, and this is. This is non-doctrinal. This is this is sort of the uh, the critical thinking or, or uh, you know or, or saw saw seminar way of, <laughs> of thinking about these things. Um, so we know from studying history that amphibious operations and really modern amphibious operations trace their roots back to uh, 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 Allied efforts on the Gallipoli Peninsula in World War One. Combined force of British. Commonwealth, Australian, New Zealand, uh, colonial Indian uh, and French forces uh, uh, landing on the Gallipoli Peninsula uh, to take that that piece of ground in order to permit Allied ships to go up the Dardanelles and, uh, and uh, assault or bombard with naval gunfire uh, Istanbul as a way to keep the Turks, Turkey, um, from supporting uh, their German allies and Austrian, Austro-Hungarian allies on the Western Front. So, strategic picture there, operational picture: open the straits, take the mines out, take the naval guns, so that Allied ships can get up and create a problem for the Turks. Tactically, an amphibious operation on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Um, taught a lot of lessons across all the uh, 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 Allied and and other armed forces after World War I. Some took the lesson away that amphibious operations are just too complex, too difficult, and must be avoided at all cost. Um, in the United States, for primarily the Marine Corps, but also the United States Army, looked at the after action reports, if you will, and said, no, this, this can serve as a template. If you fix this, if you do this differently, if you develop these material capabilities, amphibious ships landing craft aircraft um, you can use amphibious operations you can do that military operational launch from the sea base um, but from a critical thinking perspective why do you do that what makes it of value and again as an opinion I think it falls into one of three categories Um, And as you look at the historical uh, uh, background and record of amphibious operations, things tend to align into these three categories. First is necessity. There's no other way to get forces there. Islands in in the Pacific in World War II. There's really no other way to get on an island, particularly an island isolated by thousands of miles of Pacific Ocean other than to come from from the sea. Put forces on amphibious ships, sail them with other ships, conduct an amphibious landing or assault on that island in order to secure that island always for some higher purpose. Normally because of an airfield, which then extends your bomber and fighter cover reach as you start to close in on your adversary, in this case the, the Japanese Empire. So there's necessity. Um, there's also convenience. And I would uh, submit that the majority of MU operations from the 1980s on conducted amphibious offloads, often in the, in the uh, uh, auspices of an amphibious landing or assault, for convenience. Um, you're on, your equipment is on uh, uh, naval ships, you're in the area, you're going to do training or an operation in a given country, and it's the best way to get there. So it's it's convenient. Um, I would say that uh, uh, in many ways, marine operations in Vietnam from the initial landings at, uh, at Da Nang, again, it was an offload of convenience. Um, some of that also went on uh, in uh, uh, uh the intervening years between Desert Shield and Desert Storm, in the uh, in the North Arabian Gulf, and certainly then happened again uh, multiple times during the course of Operation Enduring Freedom or uh, Iraqi Freedom. Um, with regard to uh, operations in Afghanistan, uh, that was a true amphibious assault, and and record-setting in many ways, not least of which being the the distance traveled inland. Right. Um, and then finally the last category of why an amphibious operation, uh, again, from sort of the plain English critical thinking perspective is, um, because it's tactically sound because it creates an advantage against an adversary that they cannot, uh, account for. And that, uh, does all the good, uh, maneuver warfare tenets in terms of the results on that enemy system. All right, you create a problem the enemy can't solve. You put the enemy in a dilemma that they're unable to extricate themselves from. Their ability to command and control themselves uh, uh, and sustain forces against you uh, starts to erode and go away. Um, Prime examples. Uh, The Marine prime example is Incheon in 1950 during the Korean War. So essentially doing an amphibious envelopment. To get around and behind to a less defended flank of an enemy, a ground ground ground-based enemy, cut their lines of communication, isolate them, and then defeat them in detail. That's a tactically sound operation. And using the
1: sea as maneuver space, precisely, by almost by definition, is not
2: correct. Correct.
1: It's exactly. an obstacle. Yeah, there's In not a mo- lot of un- nations that right, can un- do. Right. On most people's that's exactly sea right. Maneuvers. Yeah. Most people's Maku, the sea is can't go there. Crossed out. Can't yeah. go there.
2: Um, again, because of a lack of capital C capabilities. Um, my my personal favorite example of that use of the sea as maneuver space is not a marine example. It's an army example. From, uh, from fairly early in World War II. Um, and it is what, uh, at the time, uh, Lieutenant General uh, Patton did during the uh, uh, Allied uh, 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 assault on Sicily. Um, landings occurred on the south shore of Sicily, which is a roughly triangular island. Um, in the upper right or northeast corner is the Messina crossing into the boot of Italy. Uh, combined allied, so British and uh, and U.S. forces, land on the south. Um, the British forces take the most direct route uh, south and then uh, northeast up to Messina. The American forces clear the west and north sides of the island, and during the course of doing that, Patton and his division conducted a series of three amphibious envelopments on German forces along defending that that stretch of north shore of Sicily uh, to close on Messina. They had the landing craft. They were not um, uh, uh, inordinately complex uh, envelopments because they did not involve getting back on ships. So there was no amphibious withdrawal or recovery involved. But with the landing craft, with the forces, put them on the landing craft, like take them out to sea. short to shore. Maneuver. Exactly. Yeah. So short to shore maneuver again, but using the sea as maneuver mm-hmm. space and getting behind and on the flank of a defending enemy, cutting them off, cutting their 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 access of uh, of retreat uh, and in terms of defeat mechanisms. That is one of the most effective tactically when when the enemy loses the option of retreating, uh, then they have only two choices. Die in place or surrender, and most opt for surrender at mm-hmm. that point. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, those are those are sort of the why amphib things. But but again, all of it boils down to having the ability, the capability, capital C, uh, to use the sea as maneuver space, um, and that's how we get to uh, kind of the modern dilemmas about amphibiosity. Uh, so. For uh, many years, we have focused our amphibious requirements. So what does the Marine Corps need as a Marine Corps? What does the Marine Corps need from the United States Navy? What does the Marine Corps need from the Joint Force um, in order to do what? Well, that what is the amphibious requirement. And for many years, it was expressed as a joint forcible entry operation requirement. The term JFAO gets (laughs) used. Again, sometimes interchangeably with an amphibious operation. But again, some joint forcible entry operations are amphibious, but not all are. Um, The one that's relevant here uh, was often referred to as the 2-MEB JFAO. So the Marine Corps has to be able to... Organized train equipment provide two Marine Expeditionary Brigades, and the Navy has to provide the amphibious ships and landing craft for those two Marine Expeditionary Brigades to conduct an amphibious assault. On
1: potentially different shores.
2: Correct. Either together or on on different uh, different objectives.
1: Objectives, yes, sir. Um,
2: So... Uh, but looking at the, the definition of a joint forcible entry operation, the seizure and holding of a military lodgment in the face of armed opposition or forcing access into a denied area to allow movement and maneuver. All right? That is, uh, again, a part of that expeditionary invasion, military invasion of foreign territory. Um, and clearly amphibious isn't the only way that you can do that. Um, we have uh, Army uh, entire divisions based on conducting joint forcible entry operations um, uh, from the air with the United States Air Force providing their transportation and and movement and maneuver. Um, But for the Marine Corps, organizing, training, equipping, and providing a combatant commander with two Marine Expeditionary Brigades is, has been the, uh, the chalk mark on the wall for uh, a generation or more. Um, and so what we've, what we've discovered is, or what we learned along the way is, again, like all of these joint definitions, there are lesser included offenses. What, what do we really mean by a Marine Expeditionary Brigade? How many regiments or regimental landing teams are in that brigade? How many battalions are in each individual landing team? Why is that important? Well, because that eventually gets translated by the Navy into how much amphibious ship capability is required.
1: Boat spaces.
2: Correct. Um, boat spaces, landing, uh, landing craft, uh, well deck spaces, flight deck spaces. Yep, how big is the ace? Yep. Exactly. So um, within that also, details, details, details. Within that uh, landing force, regimental combat team, Regimental Landing Team, how many battalions are going ashore using surface means? Um, those those uh, uh, AAV P Seven Alpha ones that Vic loves so much. <laughs> right. um, and 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 you know my background in the Marine Corps um, has probably got more time in Amtracks than than Vic does.
1: Oh yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, like is after nine eleven. Uh... We didn't see those for quite some time. <laughs> no,
2: I mean, it's, it's for me, it started out as a platoon commander uh, in a, a rifle company uh, using AAVs off the well deck of an LST, a landing ship tank, um, which haven't been in the naval inventory since uh, the early 1990s. At that time, Mews were five ships, not three. Nice. Um, and, uh, there was, there was an awful lot of capability there and, uh, uh, gradually that went away, but why did it go away? Why did the number of amphib ships go away? Because we, the Marine Corps, for our own purposes, started changing the definition of how many, how many, uh, units, how many battalions go ashore by, by, uh, uh, AAVs, how many go ashore by landing craft air cushion or by LCUs, how many fly ashore by helicopter. That's still an amphibious operation when the Healer-Borne assault starts on a ship. Um, and so, you know, one if by land, two if by sea. <laughs> no, we, we change that around. And for very good reasons, uh, and these are these are uh, requirements-based and, and budget-based decisions, uh, the United States Navy... Uh, starts reducing the number of amphibious ships required um, to the point where, and you mentioned O plans earlier, uh, and not, not getting into, uh, uh, anything classified here, but some of the major theater war high end O plans, um, are the last requirements placed on the Marine Corps and the Navy for large scale amphibious operations. Um, and, uh, uh they uh, essentially require almost the entire inventory of amphibious ships, landing craft, and, and the United States Marine Corps, active and reserve component, in order to conduct that size of amphibious operation as part of a joint forcible entry operation um, against a, a, a near-peer nuclear armed adversary, um, on a peninsula. So we, we kind of, you know, shorthand know, know what that is. Um, but the fact remains that we, we, the Marine Corps started moving the goalposts incrementally and the Navy followed suit. Um, and that finally, I, I would say finally manifested itself, um, in, uh, 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 kind of the inevitable uh, place it was, it was bound to go um, on and after uh, the um, uh, attack on the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi. Um, the fact of the matter is uh, that for a significant period of time, prior to 9-11, um, there was a semi-permanent presence of a Marine Expeditionary Unit in the Mediterranean Sea. Why is it there? not to you know, pull Great Liberty in, in the South of France <laughs> or, or, uh, or Italy, um, not just to conduct uh, uh, training exercises with NATO partners and other partner nations in and around the Mediterranean. It was there as the crisis response force in the event one of our embassies or other US interests in a very uh, uh, dynamic and challenging part of the world Um, required reinforcement, evacuation, etc. There was no MU in the Mediterranean when Benghazi occurred. The forces that were uh, uh, assigned that mission were uh, conducting training in another part of the theater too far away to be of a relevant response. Um, There were Navy surface combatants operating in the, in the Mediterranean that were able to respond in time. However, they don't have a landing force. All they can do is shoot things from, from the sea. Um, not, not entirely a, a useless capability, but not appropriate to what occurred. And then it took time to get uh, special operations forces and aircraft on station that could actually influence what was going on at the embassy. That's a marine mission. That's a MU mission. It's one of the tasks that every MU trains for. The problem is there was no mew in the Mediterranean at that point, largely driven by the paucity of available amphibious ships for both operations and training. So you can't have everything everywhere. Everything goes to where the fight is, and at the time the fight is in the North Arabian Gulf, Iraq, Afghanistan, Horn of Africa. Um, so the response of the Marine Corps, again, relevance and uh, the expeditionary nature, is to create this thing that we have now called Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Forces for Crisis Response. What they are, in a lot of ways, are elements of a MU, a Marine Expeditionary Unit uh, that have been deployed and shore-based somewhere for extended periods of time. Uh, utilizing um, uh, US bases in foreign
1: countries, that can quickly aggregate. Correct, or operate, or operate, or in operate Japan.
2: independently. Um, I would, they have uh, uh, there are plans to uh, to aggregate them. Um, to my knowledge, they have never actually aggregated for anything above a a reinforced company level uh, exercise or operation. Um, but they're also limited by their dependence on uh, uh, tactical aircraft. So the uh, the MV-22 Osprey provides an incredible capability in terms of reach if and only if it has access to strategic or, or operational refueling assets to go further and, fr- and farther. And it does not carry a, uh, a large ground combat element footprint, um, not even a, uh, an entire formation of them. So, again, there's dependence passed into the joint force for greater operational mobility from air force aircraft Mm -hmm. um so uh again this this boils down around to uh the the navy's part of amphibious operations and that capability and the uh the the, the lack thereof um the follow-on and here's the uh where i say the the current environment really kicks into gear um, so the other thing that went on during this, this entire period of uh, really from the end of the Vietnam War up through the present day is we, um, the United States military, started to optimize our, our uh, uh, standoff capabilities. Large platforms, large amphibious ships, aircraft carriers, to a lesser degree submarines, mm. um, air bases, unit. Capabilities, uh, uh, ground bases uh, outside of uh, of the old uh, European theater, to create uh, uh, concentrations of combat power that we can then deploy into uh, uh, into a crisis area. Uh, what what we've done in doing that, or what we did in doing that, from the enemy perspective, is self optimized targets. Right? <laughs> we created large concentrations of U.S personnel and capabilities conveniently packaged for mass destruction by a modern capability in terms of attack technology. Um, So that gets lumped under a term called A2AD, Mm -hmm. which stands for anti-access and area denial. Um, And those are military tactics and the capabilities that underline them used to prevent in this case, U.S. forces um, from uh, uh, gaining access or using access to overseas bases or, or forward locations. Um, and you'll hear a lot of talk about um, sea denial, um, denying sea space to an adversary. In this case, uh, uh, the, People, uh, the People's Republic of China's ability to deny the use of sea space to U.S. forces. Um, because of their uh, their weapons capabilities. They're specifically uh, uh, surface-to-surface uh, attack missiles, so missiles that can reach out over the horizon uh, to destroy one of these self-optimized targets, large, large uh, seagoing vessels. Um, oh, by the way, they can also uh, influence large concentrations of troops on the ground. Um, and so... What the Marine Corps has been doing is, is with the entire Joint Force, looking at what capabilities now, capital C and small c. So what operations, what types of, of, uh, of operations, and then what equipment solutions are required for those operations, what new organizations, training tactics, et cetera, are required to operate in that environment, that environment where the enemy has the ability to deny you access. Um, the fact is, when you, when you take that out of the equation, um, your only deterrence, the only way to make an adversary or a competitor or a threat uh, uh, either do something or not do something, rapidly becomes a nuclear deterrent.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The highest of high end. So the reason the Cold War worked... Is because there were two levels below that. There was a, a very low level of uh, uh, insurgency, counterinsurgency, proxy, war. proxy wars, guerrilla wars. There was also in the middle, you know, nuclear on the bottom, on the high end, proxy wars on the low end. In the middle, there was a robust and capable conventional deterrent. All right. The example being, uh, if we want to look at the Cold War. Uh, In Europe, there were thousands, actually hundreds of thousands, of U.S. troops based in Europe, all over Germany, in England, in Italy, um, along with their equipment, and they routinely did exercises and gotten shows. Norway, all the the, uh, uh, forward uh, uh, forward based supplies in Norway for the Marine Corps on what was the uh, the northern flank or the left flank of NATO. That was there in the event of, of conventional war in Europe. But what it really is, is a deterrent of conventional war in Europe. So now if you take the ability to establish that sort of deterrence, to put those sorts of, of capabilities, units, assets in a relevant position, respective to your enemy, you lose that form of deterrence what the Marine Corps and the other services, the Marine Corps in particular are doing with expeditionary advanced base operations and the capabilities that go along with conducting those operations with Force Design 2030, which is changing, uh, uh, modifying the Marine Corps in terms of structure and capabilities in order to provide a force capable of doing uh, expeditionary advanced base operations. What the Marine Corps is doing is trying to recreate a conventional deterrent so that it does not immediately default or or elevate, escalate to nuclear deterrence, and also builds on um, uh, what we've learned over 20 years about that low end of irregular warfare. Um, and so uh, that's, that's really what EABO is. It's developing uh, everything associated with an an operational capability for the Marine Corps, so equipment, organizing, training, um, that recreates a conventional deterrent that is capable of operating inside, so the term inside force gets thrown around. So the inside force or the stand-in force... force. As in a as uh, counterpoint to a standoff force. Nice. I stand off, I'm far enough away, and my weapons can reach the bad guys, but his can't reach me. That really doesn't exist that much anymore because of the capabilities of those those weapons. Because the threat weapons. ranges have s- exactly. extended out so far. Exactly. I mean, you know, there's, there's often a lot of talk about, well, we've got to be able to operate inside the enemy's weapons engagement zone. As we sit here in Quantico, we are say, yeah. the enemies. <laughs> like even if we play like, gigs, yeah.
1: set up in Guam, where they're already but only at the
2: harder, <laughs> at, at the highest end, um, and so uh, that that conventional deterrent capability is what's been lacking, and that's what has to now be be recreated. And in terms of its role, the Marine Corps is drawing on its traditional role as that expeditionary force in readiness. Um in order to be the uh, uh, the joint forces stand in force, expeditionary advance base capable force, um, as their as one of their uh, their service defining roles. Um, I say one of because often lost sight of is the fact that from the commandant on down, we have not turned away from the broad range of expeditionary capabilities that may be required by any combatant commander. So we're still doing all those other traditional amphibious and expeditionary roles, but now we're adding another tool to the toolbox, mm-hmm. uh, another another weapon in the arsenal, and that is a credible capability to to operate inside that uh, uh, that uh, enemy, enemy or threat. Uh, uh, weapons, weapons engagement zone. Um, we're also discovering a lot of the other requirements necessary for that. Um, some of those requirements are material solutions, new, different types of landing craft, new or innovative use of, uh, not just amphibious ships, but other, uh, maritime, uh, uh, uh sustainment vessels, um, uh, again, expanding sort of the the definition of what a what a sea base is, um, survivability issues down to down to very um, low level, simple sort of train and educate things. So you may not know this, but for example, right now um, uh, officers and NCOs uh, in in the uh, the assault amphibian MOS are also being trained as small boat coxswains oh, in their that's MOS cool. producing school. So and not only do you know how to use a tracked amphibious vehicle, a wheeled amphibious vehicle in the, the amphibious combat vehicle, but now also how to pilot a small boat. Um, and the, the point there being uh, to, to build that capability of operating in a very distributed manner inside contested maritime space, tactical mobility and the ability to sustain forces become key. Um, and so... Uh, uh, looking deeper into what's really required in order to operate that way is, uh, is sort of where the new or more modern definitions of amphibiosity uh, need to go.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that context, sir. I mean, uh, that really, I mean, a lot of uh, rabbit trails, uh, I think present themselves in that um, and that's part of the show, so we're going to try to get into some of those things. One of the things I want to try to unpack a little bit now while we got you, sir, is that, so being that, if we look at doctrinally or, or def, from a definition standpoint, being expeditionary, is not it's not required that you be amphibious. That's correct. So then, is being soldiers from the sea enough of a small sea capability that separates us from just being another a second army uh
2: that's that's a great question and let's talk about another uh so you're absolutely right not all expeditionary operations not all expeditionary forces uh not all expeditionary capabilities are amphibious and much of what the marine corps does in terms of expeditionary operations uh, does not involve amphibiosity. So, what is our our special sauce, right. if you will? <laughs> um, and I would say it's another C word. It's not necessarily expeditionary capabilities, um, which exist throughout the joint force. Uh, to include the Air Force has uh, eye-watering expeditionary airfield capabilities. The and the ability- Army has.
1: L-class shipping.
2: Absolutely. The Army has more landing craft than the United States Navy. (laughs) Uh, uh, So drive down to Fort Story, down here in the Hampton Roads area, and you can see a lot of them. Um, However, what the Marine Corps has uh, really from from boot camp and officer candidate school on uh, is expeditionary culture. Mm. So it's the organizational culture of the Marine Corps that is, is I think, and I would, uh, and, and this is, this is not because we're doing this on, uh, on 10 November, and this is not a, <laughs> a, a chest-thumping uh, uh, Marine uh, infantryman speaking. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm putting my, my Joint Force officer hat on, and what the Marine Corps has, um, wall-to-wall, at different degrees, um, is not something that all the other services have in the same volume or quality. And that is an expeditionary mindset,
1: nice. an expeditionary
2: yep. culture. And, and how do I really define that? And, and this is an experience-based decision, is that Marines really don't think twice about not having the perfect solution before they execute something operational. Um, Marines as a, as a, uh, a culture look at, uh, use your, use your bumper sticker, doing more with less, uh, doing windows, um, making, making those, uh, uh, improvise, adapt and overcome decisions in, in the heat of the moment. Um, and we, we train that, uh, and we inculcate that culture from entry level training on, um, and it, it it in some ways it uh, uh, it is our greatest strength. Um, it also uh, enables uh, one of those things that that all marines love to do uh, sometimes more than anything else, and that is bitch and moan about life. <laughs> um, you know, boy, if we had the gear that those guys yeah. had, or if we had that weapon or if it's, well where are those guys with that gear and those weapons? They're not here doing any relevant contribution to the mission of this force, this joint force commander, or the United States at this point. They're yep. they're not here yet.
1: Yep. You are. Yeah, you how many are. times do you are you in country going, Where's the army? Exactly. They'll be here in a month. That's right. They're coming. Or it's some take of them a while. Are,
2: or some of them are. Right. Right? Again, but but the entire organization
1: because their subculture exactly. is what pushes exactly. That.
2: So within the United States Army, and again, as a, as a joint, joint Force trainer, I've, I've, you know, I learned so much. And I had phenomenal experiences working with many different parts of the United States Army and the other services. Um, and there are parts of the Army that I would tell you are more expeditionary than major parts of the Marine Corps. Um, when, when you go down to Fort Bragg and you start looking at the yep. 82nd Airborne Division, Division Ready Brigade, those sorts of, of troops, and it's okay to call them troops, those soldiers uh, down, to the, down to the fighting hole level have an expeditionary mindset that in many ways uh, uh, outdistances um, a Marine combat service support Formation or a Marine uh, 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 headquarters command and control formation. Um, so, uh, and and frankly, it also outdistances some infantry formations in the Marine Corps um, who have, have become, uh, you know, kind of inured to a certain way of operating. Uh, so, getting back to that is is critical. Uh, as an underpinning for not just EABO and stand-in forces and those sorts of things, but really for the sustained relevance of the Marine Corps. Um, and if if uh, we're viewed by by the other services often as the most traditional of the of the armed forces, if there's a tradition that we absolutely have to sustain, it's that expeditionary yeah. mindset down to every level, regardless of MOS. Um, you know, it's. It, it goes hand in hand with the other uh, uh, goal of, uh, of every Marine a rifleman. The fact that every Marine qualifies with a, with a service rifle on an annual basis and is capable of doing those sorts of what in other services are considered purely infantry or ground combat arms tasks. Um, yes, Marines, part of that expeditionary mindset. You may be uh a, 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 an administrator, uh, uh a radio operator a cook a mechanic but you can by god defend yourself when the time comes
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's
2: part of that expeditionary mindset there's nobody there to do it for you
1: you got to do it yourself it's like the band becomes yes. uh let's fix security right on deployment exactly
2: exactly <laughs> um uh, it's it's uh, uh it, it touches every part of our culture it's uh you know motor stables and uh uh, 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 you know, user-level maintenance on vehicles. There's nobody else to do this for you. you got to change your own oil. Yep. Right? you got to check your own seals. Um, you, gotta bre- you you got to help the experts with the unskilled labor, like breaking track and doing those yeah. things. So you have to horse, get outside your MOS.
1: Horse saddle, man. Exactly. Well, sir, I, and, and again, like, I, I so appreciate your time because this is so great. Um, but as we're talking now about culture... Uh, I'm just going to pull a couple things out here. So MCDP-1 obviously oper- just states that operating forces must be organized to provide for deployed or rapidly deployable forces capable of conducting expeditionary operations in any environment. This means that in addition to maintaining their unique amphibious capability, operating forces must maintain the capability to deploy by whatever means is appropriate in situation. And then M C D P one Tax Zero speaks extensively about Marine Corps amphibiosity and what that means to the joint force. And like you said, it's these are sort of the, the to proof text, our culture, it's inundated since day one. You step on the footprints, you get your stuff and then you start diving into this culture of being away from the flagpole and being alone and unafraid for a you know doctrinally 90 days, but for a prolonged period of time. That being said, then, as we start looking forward and we start looking at the, the new um, operational vision of our senior leadership, has technology in particular space made being amphibious obsolete?
2: It's certainly, again, because of the, uh, uh, the threat and the challenges that um, impinge on access and and the ability of an amphibious force or really any expeditionary force um to once again go back to those uh those definitions you know seize and hold in the face of opposition military invasion all right the domain of space quote unquote the ultimate high ground uh mm-hmm. to uh to quote our space force our guardians um uh that creates another dimension of threat against any forces operating in any of the other domains. Um, when you then also tie the, um, uh, the linkages between, uh, space assets, so things in the space domain with capabilities in the cyber domain. Um, so space-based cyber operations, um, you, you compound those threats and you compound those challenges for a force operating in any other domain that much more. Um, So, you know, there are uh, uh, entire families of capabilities uh, that exist and are being developed uh, to fight in that domain, to ensure access in that domain and control slash denial Think sea control, sea denial, space control, space denial, um, in order to uh, reduce the challenges for forces and the threat to forces operating in all the other domains.
1: So you you would say then that it is a capability, a, a cyber landing force is a capability that augments the physical landing force vice replacing it.
2: I think that's a good way to put it okay yes i think that's a good way to put it i wouldn't I, I i like the term cyber landing force um uh but recognizing that there's there's at least you know kind of three different parts to that mm-hmm. there's uh there's uh, uh you know the hardware uh on which cyberspace resides um there's the software programs and applications that Uh, that make up the capabilities in cyberspace. And then there's the wetware, the human beings, the the Mm -hmm. eaters, sleepers, and air breathers who are also part of cyberspace and are the operators of Mm -hmm. that system. Mm -hmm. Um, Together, that all sort of makes, you know, so my concern about the cyber landing force uh, 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 phrase is, is it, it, it sort of devolves to the people.
0: Right? It's, it, it's yep. way more than the people. More than boots on the ground. Yep. And exactly. when you
2: start looking at the capabilities of uh, uh, not just uh, high-end artificial intelligence or machine learning, but um, simple things that we all kind of deal with now on a daily basis, botnets, uh, 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 verification uh, of, of, of access and who's actually doing what, right? Conducting offensive and defensive cyberspace operations for any military force is a key enabler to ensuring uh, the effectiveness of operations in all the other domains. Think of it, uh, and again, this was very much the model of um, phasing joint operations back in the 1990s and early 2000s. So, you know, phase zero of an operation was uh, diplomatic and other intelligence-related activities um, heavy outside the, the DOD or the Joint Force Contribution. And phase one, at some point in that very linear uh, approach to operations, involved the establishment of air superiority, Shaping. localized air supremacy, sea superiority, C, mm-hmm, you know, localized sea mm-hmm. supremacy. Before any land forces start getting committed. You know, we're going to create a, uh, uh, quote-unquote, sanitized environment <laughs> in the air and, yeah. and at sea in order to permit the uh, reception, staging, onward movement, and integration of ground forces. Um, now you have to expand that phase one shaping operations to include the space and cyber mm-hmm, domains mm-hmm. and so the required uh, capabilities and forces now expands
1: and the timelines because that's no absolutely easy and
2: and this is important thing to, to remember often often lost in academic and training environments that shaping and that uh access or uh, uh sanitized environment uh in the air and sea was never going to be perfect mm-hmm. it was always going to be permissive to a point but there was a threat
1: mm-hmm. and
2: acti- actions had to be taken forces had to be uh, dedicated to maintaining that superiority same goes for space and cyber now yeah. it's never going to be perfect there are going to be threats out there that means there is risk to the force and risk to the mission, so where is the acceptability line? You know, up to that point, there is too much risk. We cannot continue or start that next phase of you know major ground operations or you know, large-scale special operations. Um, but there's a line there, and and at, at a point, commanders have to accept risk
1: mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. those
2: other domains. Yeah,
1: it's not going to be neat. It's yeah. not going to be a neat. We've had the, every we've time. had the benefit
2: essentially of not fighting a, a peer adversary in the air or at sea mm, since the Korean War,
1: mm-hmm. since
2: the 1950s. There has been nobody that we've actually been fighting with even close to our capabilities. Therefore, making assumptions about risk in the air, sea, cyber, space domains, easy. No, we'll, you know, we don't have to worry about
1: that. No. Bring we'll your estab- camming nets for shade. We'll establish
2: superiority <laughs> and everything will be fine. Um, one leaker changes that in the air domain.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, one uh, a small boat or submarine threat or mine threat changes that in the, in the maritime domain. Same in space and cyber. One bot. That's right. One virus.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, I feel like that is a pretty good spot to start wrapping it down. Great intro. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. We covered a lot of ground. We can go ahead. and... and Air and sea space, space. Uh, but we're
1: taking ground. We're taking cyberspace and space. space. We have have established a lodgment. Yes, yes. Yes.
0: we are. uh, We're making our our landings around. Now we're ready for follow-on forces. uh, Topic. Yeah. So um, we'd love to have you back on, Woody, uh, to if you want to get back into anything that we've touched on today. I say touched on very sarcastically because touching on it with you is sticking your finger deep into the wound <laughs> uh, like it's not a surface level no. anything so no. uh, we really appreciate having you on we are recording this yes on the birthday of the of the marines uh you're not going to hear it this is an air for two weeks but we do have to go cut cake yes we do yep so I, i'm nick this is Vic, will and special guest woody editor of uh chief editor of gazette um, I guess these are both your employees here. I'm surrounded by gazetteers. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> so we were very cordial today. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. So with, uh, with that, let's just wrap it up. We'll catch you guys later. Thank you. Thanks. Great.